and welcome to Geeks with Shields, your home for all things good and nerdy in this The Darkest Timeline. I'm Lord Commander Orc, and with me as always is... His shield brother, Axel Wright. How you doing today, Axel? Tired. Ah. <laughs> I know that's not conducive to a good episode, but I'm just trying to be honest, man. <laughs> yeah, the week's almost over for you, so there's that. I guess it depends what you mean by over, but sure. You're almost to your weekend. Uh, let's move for on. all that counts for. <laughs> all right, Warhammer, go. <laughs> Yeah, on today's episode, we're back to talk more Warhammer 40k. Last time we talked about the timeline of the Imperium of Man and briefly touched on things like the Emperor and the Omnissiah and the religion that sprung up around him against his will. So this time we are back to talk about some of the worlds that make up the Imperium as well as discussing the armies that fight to maintain it. So we're not going to cover all the various world types because there are literal dozens. We're just going to cover what I believe to be the big important ones, starting with Hive Worlds. I don't know. I, I know we've talked about Hive Worlds before on the podcast. I don't know if you remember any of it. I remember mentioning it. <laughs> yeah. Essentially, a Hive World is a planet that is an unending city. The population is stacked on top of each other in these massive spires with the richest people living the higher, highest up on the spires and the poorest down near the bottom, literally fighting for survival. These are industrial hellscapes in which the world is mined for whatever resource it has, including its people. A lot of space marines draw initiates from these places because it's it's Mad Max style life there. Fun. Yeah. No, as a the whole planet is an unending city. So I'm from thinking of uh, the city from Dread now. Yeah, that's a very apt comparison. Uh, more people, though. Ugh. Yeah. No, they've got a really fun skirmish game called Necromunda where you get to play as some of the hive gangs that exist there. That's actually a lot of fun. And no, these are, as in all things, nightmares. So <laughs> throw, up, throw up those Imperium gang signs. Yeah. So from there, we move on to something similar but different, and these are Forge Worlds. These are planets that are owned by the Mechanicus, and they exist to churn out weapons of war. I mean, that seems like something I'd imagine most Imperium planets would do, but... Uh, depends on location and whether the Mechanicum, Mechanicus got there in time, uh, before anyone else did. And they're a lot like Hive Worlds, except... You know, the majority of the population are, well, not the majority, but a fair degree of the population are creepy cyborgs. So, Shadowrun. Yeah. And the other half are Imperial citizens that work 18-hour shifts to produce whatever it is the Imperium needs. And these are highly valuable because, again, the Imperium is constantly at war and constantly in need of weapons. And Forge Worlds crank them out. And different Forge Worlds make different things. I mean, some just produce guns. Some of the more important ones produce titans. So whenever these come under attack, they are a high priority. Go save this place. Otherwise, it's going to throw off our entire war effort. Alrighty then. I mean, the war effort is everything, right? (laughs) Yeah. If you're constantly at war, going through things, you need supplies. I mean, that's the most basic tenet of war. If you capture your enemy's supplies, well, they can't fight. I know, man. You made me listen to The Art of War. I know. (laughs) That's a fantastic read, and you're better for it. 
All right, what's next? What's next kind of worlds? Uh, next, we talk about agri-worlds, which are the closest thing to a nice place to live in the Warhammer 40k world. These are planets that are solely devoted to producing food to feed the Imperium. Yeah, food is kind of important. Yeah, when your population numbers in the trillions, it's, well, a key factor. Um, they're honestly the closest you're going to find to a nice place. They are typically green and verdant. Um, the majority of the McCrag system, where the Ultramarines are based out of, are agri-worlds. They're not bad places to live. It's about the best you know, you know, it's it's been a few years since I took college economics, but like when you start talking about these worlds and like what a whole world does, at first the idea that say, you know, this world basically makes food and, you know, in like relative comparison to other worlds, which of course there'll probably be still plenty of people on the planet making food, but like, you know, this is the planet that makes food. At first, it's not kind of ridiculous. When I started remembering, I'm not sure what the economic term is, but there's something like you know, specialized, the idea that say this country might not be able to make, you know, like better of a certain product than this country, but they can do it for a essentially relatively like cheaper price. So then they become like better at doing it comparatively. Right. I remember, yeah. I can't remember what the, there's a term for this, but I mean, it seems like that's what's happening on a, a macro scale. When you talk about, you know, a, a planet that's specialized to do a, a certain economical function. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, the downsides to agri-worlds is they tend to be targets for invasions by Nurgle because they are so green and full of life. And Nurgle wants to poison them, right? Yeah. So, real quick, your beautiful green verdant farmland becomes an ooey-gooey swamp of booger monsters. Gross. Yeah. Uh, next up, <laughs> probably the opposite end of the spectrum are death worlds. Well, isn't that a lovely name? Let's all go to the Death World, my friends. Yeah, Death Worlds, it's uh, pretty clear in what they are. They are uninhabitable hellscapes in which the entire planet is determined to kill you. Why? It just be it the flora and the fauna of the planet or uh, other factors. I mean, the most famous example uh, for Death Worlds are probably Catachan which people jokingly refer to as Space Australia. <laughs> but this planet fought off a chaos invasion on its own. Huh. This because is reminding me a lot. I mean, the sounds of it is reminding me a lot of Tuchanka from Mass Effect. So, uh, The plants want to kill you. The animals want to kill you. Everything wants to kill you. There are no real permanent settlements on this planet because the force is constantly creeping in, trying to destroy it. Um, we'll go into more details on this planet when we talk about the uh, Katachans of the Imperial Guard who live on this planet. Um, the other end of the spectrum of Death Worlds is Fenris, which is home of the Space Wolves, which is a ice world, uh, part of the year, covered in volcanoes, essentially because of its weird orbit. Half the year, it's a frozen, uninhabitable tundra, the other half of the year, it is a blazing hot desert. Because, of course, that's where the super cyborg space Vikings would live. Well, yeah. Death worlds are a big draw. It's not the only... Fenris isn't the only death world that space marines look at them. Uh, space marines tend to like to draw from the death worlds because, well, if you can survive there, you might have what it takes to be a space marine. High bar. Yeah. 
No, we'll talk, go into them when we talk about Space Marines a bit more, because there's a few more Death Worlds worth talking about. But by the uh, way, I just want to say, like, um, I don't, I know you don't have too much information on this, but, um, and I, that's kind of a side topic, but I keep going back to, so, uh, really quick, in Mass Effect, that planet Tuchanka I was talking about, it's where the angry turtle people come from. And in the yeah. Codex, yeah, in the Codex, there's a line that says that, uh, up until basically the invention of the gun, the number one cause of death was still eaten by predator. And then once the invention of gunpowder, it was now, it was gunshot. <laughs> so. Yeah. No, one of the fun things we'll talk about real quick with the uh, Katachan is the Katachan barking toad, which that sounds. Sound intimidating. Huh? So that doesn't sound scary. No, it doesn't. It's this little tiny toad that lives on Katachan that barks once, you know, kind of makes a croaking noise to let you know it's there, and if you don't get away from it, it blows up. Well, that seems extreme. Yeah, it is the second deadliest creature on this planet. The other is the Katachan Devil, which is described as a giant centipede. I see, that sounds like a thresher maw. (laughs) But I will say, like, in reality, right, I think the, the number of creatures that will willingly blow themselves up is pretty low. I mean, the carpenter ants will do it, but they're ants. So, yeah, it's not a smart creature, but it's got a pretty impressive blast radius. I mean, this is legitimately, everyone is, this is one that, this is, everyone talks about this and goes, oh, shit. Catachan barking toads? Nah. Jeez. Yeah. No, when we get, like I said, when we get into the Catachan devils and that whole regiment, we'll go into more and they'll put things more in perspective of these badasses are afraid of a toad. So, completely... (laughs) For a completely non-interesting criticism that is not at all a real criticism, just a weird nitpick of personally, I really don't like that word you keep saying, katachan. It just doesn't <laughs> roll off the tongue very well. It's un- an unpleasant word. Well, it's an unpleasant planet. <laughs> I guess it works then. Yeah. And then lastly, we're going to talk about Fortress Worlds, which again is very descriptive. These are planets that have been turned entirely over to defense. The world is one unending fortress. Color me unsurprised. Yeah, sometimes 40K is really on the nose with their naming conventions. I mean, also at the same time, the whole point of names and words is to convey meaning, so... Yeah. Did the job right. Just saying. Yeah, no, we talked about uh, one of the most famous fortress world last time we talked about Cadia, and they are typically, you know, every system has a few fortress worlds. Typically, they are built in strategic points but their main purpose is well to defend the entire population is given over to a war effort um cadia being the best example essentially children were taught how to use guns before they could walk because that was the nature of the planet it's hard to think of like because i would imagine you know fortresses in the real world they usually sat in very important places like you know choke points and passes and stuff like that it's like you're in space there's not really such thing as like a spatial choke point so well that the Cadia was right there it was guarded one of the most stable uh routes through the warp so that's why they were so important i suppose when your potential avenues of travel all go through an insane realm of hate and insanity you know, value what you can get, right? Yeah, and the kind of the idea behind Fortress Worlds is the same as it would be with the city in, you know, traditional warfare. If you leave a planet behind, they're just going to keep launching attacks from you 
so you have to, you know, capture it. But if an entire planet is given over to defense, you're going to have to spend some time and some bodies trying to get it. Unless you're the orcs, then you just land a couple, and then they're stuck there forever. But that's just yeah. the part I'm talking about them. Then, no, orcs like fortress worlds. That's a good place for fighting. Yep. Anyway, uh, so those are the what, one, two, three, four, five kinds of yeah. primary kinds There's of worlds? There's a whole bunch more we didn't go into, but these are the ones I can consider. If you're going to... For an introduction to 40k, these, I think, are the most important and relevant. Well, I'm an engineer, so I have to be attracted to Forge Worlds on principle, I guess. No, I don't know. We, we, we talk about the mechanical, mechanical. We'll see what you think about them. Okay, day. So, moving into Armies of the Imperium. Uh, Axel, how many of the armies are you familiar with? I know you've played Dawn of War, and I know we've talked about it. I know that's covered a few, but I'm, not, I'm just kind of curious how many you know. Well, I'm looking at a list of names here, and I'm going to be perfectly honest with you, two of them are familiar to me, and I barely remember where I saw them before, <laughs> which are uh, the Adeptus Astarta and the Adeptus Mechanicus. Okay. That's it. I got nothing more for you, man. Like I said, uh, I'm never a big fan of the Imperium, and even when I was looking into them, it was either at Primarchs or the Space Marines that they led. I don't know too much about the Imperium proper. Well, that's kind of the whole point of this podcast. Well, go for it then. What's the first army you want to talk about? Uh, the first army I want to talk about is the Astra Militarum, also known as the Imperial Guard. Are they the Angry Flashlights? These are the Angry Flashlights. Woohoo! Uh, to explain, the reason they're called the Angry Flashlights is their main weapon is a las gun, which uses a focused beam of light to do damage. Lasers. Essentially, yeah. It's really simple technology. They make up the bulk of the armies of the Imperium being standard humor humans that are under-equipped to fight what they're asked to. They die in the millions. And that's their style of warfare. Go fight the army of Godzilla-sized Tyranids with your tiny laser gun. Yeah, and here's the fun thing about the Laz gun. On its own, it's not powerful enough to pierce most armor. So it's only through mass fire and lucky shots are they able to bring anything down. Wow, that's not too different from how conventional guns deal with armored shit nowadays. Yeah, but no, like I said, they die in the millions but again this population in the universe is in the trillions if not more um they're typically supported by lots and lots and lots of really big armored vehicles the biggest being the bane blade which is a tank the size of a house i thought you said Beyblade at first and i was like i didn't know the experience <laughs> let it rip oh really really just saying. Just saying. Oh, I never got into that one. I never did either, but it doesn't mean it's not hilarious. I guess. So, as you said, it's a big armored tank. I'm not going to – I'm just going to see it as a big top now. You know that, right? It's just a big armored top in my brain. <laughs> well, it's a bit slower moving in one directional, but the goal, the uh, effect is the same. It just kind of plows through. As a side note, did you know that Beyblade got to a point where they had Jesus – or not Jesus, Moses – Literally Moses, part of the Red Waters or the Red Sea with a Beyblade. What the hell, Japan? Yeah, there was no no like metaphor. It was straight up Moses parting the sea with a goddamn Beyblade. Anyway, we talk about that another time. But go ahead, keep going. Yeah. So yeah, no. Um, 
the cool thing, I mean, they are the most conventional army, even if it's humans with guns, with tanks and aircrafts. Well, doesn't their name literally mean star military? Yeah. I mean, it's pretty general at that point. It's accurate. Yeah. No, I mean, you get some cool variations in the regiments, which we'll go into when we give them their own video. Uh, They're just the most basic human faction of the human factions. Uh, A lot of people really like them because they're relatable, and they kind of admire the bravery that it takes to go into battle with a flashlight and some flak armor against an eight-foot-tall horned monstrosity. Yeah, because basically, unless they're going to war against the Eldar, like, everything else is super intimidating. (laughs) Yeah, and even then, the Eldar are human-sized, and they fire razor discs. Eh, that's the Angry flashlight, laser disc, whatever. Right, what's the next? What's <laughs> next up? So next up is the Adeptus Sororitas, commonly known as the Sisters of Battle. Oh, so uh, like, um, I don't remember what Latin with Adeptus is like. Martial, essentially, like martial sorority. Yes, because, okay. well, long story short, the Ecclesiarchy, which is the religious organization of the Imperium is not allowed to have men under arms. So they went and started an all-female division. And oh, as, a, as a side note real quick, I just looked up Adeptus because I was getting on my nerves. I didn't know it. And it's just a plural noun for a person who has attained knowledge of the secrets of alchemy, magic, and the occult. So... Interesting. Or um, an initiate to the secrets of a particular hermetic order or occult organization. So it's literally, well, the Imperium's kind of a cult organization. Yeah, so that's why like Adeptus Sororitas is basically like saying, you know, occult sororities. So Yeah. So no. They're kind of interesting. So like I said, the Ecclesiarchy wasn't allowed to have men under arms. So their solution was, okay, we'll create an all-female division to fight for us. I have been told, and I noticed this myself when I was researching it, but uh that Warhammer has a general problem with uh, female representation, as in it's extremely minimal. Oh, yeah. They're getting there. They're adding armies in. They're trying to support it. But it has the same problem any franchise has that's been going since the 80s. They leaned really hard into one market over the other. Yeah. I mean, don't be wrong. What, or, I don't know how to phrase this properly. Let me just put it this way. I love Valkyries, so badass warrior women is a, a, a thing in movies and stuff I like. So. Well, then you might like the Sisters of Battle. It could go either way. But essentially, there's still it's an all-female army of fanatical warrior women. They are okay. given power, some uh, power armor and bolters, which is typically the equipment of space marines. And theirs is to a lesser degree and sent into battle. They, you know, not augmented, not anything different. They do the same thing space marines do, more or less, but purely through faith and determination. Zealots. Oh, yeah. No, they are crazy zealots in the fact that they will burn entire worlds. Aren't Hmm? most armies in the Imperium zealots, really, though? Not really. I mean, 
the an average uh, Imperial Guard regiment won't burn your world for not having the proper, you know, saint feast on the proper day. Same thing with most Space Marines. Uh, Sisters of Battle will burn your civilization to the ground for one mutant amongst your population. Mm, well, those other armies obviously don't believe enough. Oh, yeah. No, and that's one of the cool things. Where other armies have psychers to support them, Sisters of Battle abhor psychers. It's an, it's an evil mutation. Their stuff is derived purely through faith. And one of their big things are living saints, which are sisters who did these great acts of faith and then were resurrected and given god powers by the emperor. I'm hearing Valkyrie paladins is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, they uh, typically have big wings, glowing auras, and flaming swords. Yeah, Valkyrie paladins sounds right to me. Yeah. No, uh, their big thing is fire, and lots of it. Yeah, that's... Okay, more power to them. I've just I've never been a fan of fire as far as elements go in my media. Too, it's too a common. cleansing thing. Cleansing fire. <laughs> Sorry, I was... In my, uh, in my epic D&D campaign, we actually went to uh, Asgard, and some essentially um, paladins of, like the one true god were using holy fire to cleanse Yggdrasil, and I was, like, personally affronted. So... <laughs> now, one of the cool things about the Sisters of Battle is, one, typically their ranks are drawn from the orphanages of the Imperium, which in a universe that's constantly at war, there's a lot of orphans. Yeah, that sounds about right. And one of the things to do is once you've been selected to do this and you've gone through all the training and you've decided to go through the militant arm of the Adeptus Sororitas, because there are other arms of this organization. There's one that does medical, you know, goes to the war zones and acts as nurses. There's another one that does research. They're all capable of totally kicking your ass. But if you do decide to go down the militant arm, you're not allowed to wear a helmet into battle for the first chunk of your service. Well, that just seems foolish. Well, it's to test your faith, because if you believe in the Emperor, the Emperor will personally protect you. Oh, okay. That seems a different kind of justifiable foolishness. Yeah, this they're all, This is the army of the Church, and they are both awesome and terrifying. Okay, who's next, then? All right, moving on next, of course, is the Adeptus Astartes, also known as the Space Marines the poster childs for Warhammer 40k. And so, go ahead. They are your I hate to say it, standard sci-fi superhero. About 9 feet tall, super strong, can breathe in space. Some can spit acid. They've undergone a whole bunch of genetic, you know, augmentation and they wield machine guns that fire rockets essentially. That's the best way to describe a bolter. I sorry, I was I was listening to you right with the bolter and stuff. At the same time, I was now I'm on this kick of like you tell me a name and I'm gonna go look up what it means. So I already said Adeptus is basically like an an occult group or an organization. So Astartus, I was like, well, if space marines, maybe that's something to do with marines. But all I can find is references to a Greek goddess of uh, I what what was it? Uh, Worship in the Bronze Age through classical antiquity. I lost it. But just some Greek goddess, yeah, and, and a bat. she's also Babylonian. Um, if I find what she's the goddess of, I'll tell you. But <laughs> keep going. Yeah. So essentially, what happens is, space marines either have recruiting worlds they draw from, or 
sectors that they draw from that they will go and depending on the chapter they will go and visit this planet and pick the best of its youth i mean typically they pick before puberty because there's a whole bunch of implantations to go into the process they undergo something like 30 different surgeries to augment their body this includes things like adding a second heart creating another set of lungs fusing their rib cages all sorts of crazy stuff well it's basically to the point that uh they're, they're barely human they barely qualify yes. human they are i technically argue no longer human i mean the base dna is there but they are so different also, for the record, Astarte was connected with fertility, sexuality, and war. And her symbols well, they got the, the war there. Yeah, her symbols were the lion, the horse, the sphinx, the dove, and a star within a circle. Interesting. I have no idea what this has to do with it. I did see someone else mention that Adeptus could also be defined as just pupil, which might make more sense. But So it could be literally the pupils of Astarte, which would kind of translate to the students of war. That makes sense. Because, yeah... Their whole thing is they're going to go, they fight wars in the Imperium. Um, and they're essentially divided down into two categories, codex chapters and non-codex chapters. And real quick, a chapter is roughly 10,000 Marines divided into 10 hundred-man companies. And that number has been highly debated depending on what uh, you know, series of references you're looking at. I only know that because I was looking a while back at like, forums for i think i was looking up who the best primarch was not yeah. like an objective thing but just to see what people were saying right and yeah. people were talking about how like well if it's a one-on-one -on -one fight it's going to be this guy but basically most forums seem to agree that if it was a like an army fight they'd probably give it to the ultramarine dude uh, gielman and for reasons we talked about before but they were talking about like well you could you know on average split a chapter into like 10,000 and someone else is like well that depends some sources could go as high as like 100,000 and yeah so yeah that's and that's where thing. the difference kind of comes in is codex chapters and non-codex chapters because after the horse heresy Gilliman had been writing a book called uh, I believe it was the codex imperialis I'm honestly I can't remember I'm blank I'm trying to remember this for a couple of days and I can't remember but essentially it was the art of war for space marine what to do in this situation, what to do in this situation, how to fight this enemy. It was a whole kind of restructuring of the army because that was his whole you know, gimmick. And after the heresy, he saw what potential could come if a million man army of space marines went, no, nah, we're gonna do our own thing now. So he's like, okay, this is the rules I wrote for us. I think we should follow it. And some of his brothers are like, no, that's a good idea. I agree with that. The other, some of the other ones were like, no, go fuck yourself. Wasn't that, isn't that why, like, I remember reading that there are, like, while no Space Marine chapter that I read about is in, like, open enmity with the Imperium, there are plenty that, you know, because they are descended directly from their Primarchs, they have more of a, a closer to the truth viewing of the God Emperor. Like, they might have huge reference for their Primarch, but they also recognize that their Primarch was related to the God Emperor, but they don't... Point is, I've read that plenty of times a chapter will be like, uh, okay, you crazy Imperial zealots, just get out of our way. We, we've got yeah. our own business. Well, even in with Codex and non-Codex chapters, you get Templar chapters, which they view the Emperor as a god, where other chapters view him as a father figure or a leader. It all really depends. 
But no, the best examples of all three, of course, Codex Chapter being the Ultramarines, who for the longest time viewed this as holy script until Gilliman came back and was like, that wasn't my intention. In fact, I'm going to rewrite this because this is too inflexible. It's just a book, bros. Come on. Yeah. Uh, the most notable non-Codex chapter is the Space Wolves, who are entirely up. We're going to do our own thing. Go fuck yourself. Sounds about right. And, of course, the most notable uh, Templar order, of course, is the Black Templar, who are on constant crusade and whose numbers are estimated to run into the tens of thousands. And they well, are... Are you going to sure you're going to rephrase that? Because we said at the beginning that on average, based on your reference, on average, each chapter is like 10,000. Are you saying that all of the Black Templars number are in the 10,000s? Like, what do you mean yeah, by that? Yeah, there's more. Than, there's like 30... Some estimates, I think, are like 50,000. Okay, so in order to try to be consistent without sticking to one we could say that there are roughly five chapters worth of uh beings in the black templars which is just one chapter so it's like yeah. five times larger than an average chapter yes okay and they are constantly on crusade and you know fighting they worship the god the emperor of mankind as a god they wholly believe in him and they typically get along pretty well with the sisters of battle because they have the same views Makes sense. Yeah. No. So each uh, Space Marine has their own style culture and their own way of drawing recruits. Um, real quick, we'll talk about well, the Space Wolves. Hmm? Really quick, since we didn't talk about it in our Chaos episode, I know there's such thing as Chaos Space Marines. I know that generally are Space Marines who have been corrupted, but do they have their own, like, Chaos chapters or... Yes. Oh. Huh. They have their... They are still... A lot of them still fight in the Legion format. Uh, and a couple still, and then from there they broke off into war bands. But they do have their own unique iconography, fighting style, beliefs, huh. and rivalry, yeah. which is really cool. Okay, go ahead. I know so, you've yeah. talked about how the Space Wolves recruit, but that's the only one I know. Yeah, I was going to talk about the Space Wolves real quick, because essentially Fenris views the Space Wolves as gods, and they refer to the Emperor as the Allfather. By the way, it took me like half a second to realize when you said Fenris, you meant the non-space wolf population of this planet. So yeah. it's just a weird <laughs> phrase, but that's what she meant. Okay. And so they still live a very Viking Age style life and will go to war because land, it's essentially Vikings. Land is not fertile for long, so they're constantly raiding and shifting about. And occasionally the space wolves will fly out wherever there's a battle going on and the locals will see them and go, ah, the gods have come to choose the bravest of the slain, and they'll fight extra hard, and the space wolves will go, okay, you, you, and you, you fought really bravely. Come on, you're going to go get the opportunity to be a space wolf. Time for surgery. Yeah. Um, the Ultramarines have a grueling set of trials ending in a marathon run where if the, all those that make it to the end of this, you know, after all these... Uh, physical challenges, wrestling, athletics, in this marathon get the opportunity to go on and become Ultramarines. I think one of my favorite recruiting techniques of Space Marines is the uh, Blood Ravens who show up on a planet and announce, and don't announce what they're there for. Everyone just kind of knows, okay, the Space Marines are here to recruit. Let's go see how we become Space Marines. And everyone gathers wherever they are and they will just sit there and they will wait. And the Blood Angels will watch, 
them and the Blood people Ravens. who watch. Hmm? You mean Blood Ravens, right? Because I thought there's Blood Angels are another. Oh villain. yeah, sorry, Blood Ravens. Yeah, good. we'll just kind of sit there and watch until someone picks up the cue, and a massive battle royale starts. I know that the Blood Ravens are the ones that are actually in the Dawn of War games. Yeah, they were made solely for those games. Their lore has kind of gone underdeveloped and at times poorly written. But like I said, their recruiting technique of okay, and then the last handful of you handful of you left standing after this big fight, you have what it takes to be part of this, you know, chapter. So each group has their own recruiting style dependent on their own, you know, the chapter's personality. All right. Well, considering how space marines are so varied and chapter and stuff, we should uh, move on and save them for another time, I guess. Oh, yeah. Each of these armies will get their own separate video because there's so much to talk about. So next up on our list is the Adeptus Mechanicus. Pupils of the Machine? Yes. We've talked about them before when we talked about the Omnissiah, but... This is the army of the Omnissiah. Um, their whole goal in life is to strip away the weakness of the flesh and replace it with cool, shiny robot bits. Praise be to Skynet. Wait, what do they think with the Necron, then? They... This hasn't really been explored. They're kind of in the middle of a big war with the Necron. But it sounds like the Necron are literally the thing that they are idealizing, that they are striving to be. Yeah, but they're also kind of considered soulless and a little bit too close to AI, which they're uh, very much against. I mean, I guess it's all arbitrary, but it seems like a pretty fine line. Very much so. All right, go ahead. Keep going. Well, no, they do. They very much do ride that arbitrary line of what is true AI. I mean, at what point when you've stripped away entire elements of your human body, do you stop becoming human and become AI? Now, that's a really old philosophical question there. Yeah, and that's kind of their whole gimmick, is, you know, these guys live thousands of years. I mean, some of them are going on... Uh, there's one. He's been alive since the Horus Heresy. That'd be a long time. Yeah, and it's because they just keep replacing parts of them. And Don't... don't isn't... um. So I remember hearing about this, but isn't one of the points of like technology in general at the Imperium that there was like a, a a particularly crazy AI that they call the machine spirit that they have to make sure a gun doesn't contain a piece of before they will allow it to go out to anyone or something like that? No, the machine spirit is kind of what they worship to, and the machine spirit is their workaround for AI because. Everything needs a rudimentary form of AI to function to some degree or another. You know, the more complex it is, the more powerful a processor you need. Sure, sure. But, and so to avoid, but because of the whole Man of Iron scenario, they didn't want to, you know, do anything like that. So what they do is they take a piece of a human brain and they plug it into their machine and through that it functions. And that's the machine spirit. And it can be very temperamental and can develop its own personality over time. And uh, this is what the Mechanicus worships to and tries to appease, is because everything in the Imperium that has any level of technology has some degree of machine spirit to it. And you can anger the machine spirit, and the machine spirit will go, nah, fuck you, I don't want to do this anymore. 
or even times the machine spirit can get so angry it can overpower its operator. <laughs> I know I'm biased as hell, but I'm sitting here thinking, too bad you don't have a low-level psychic field across your entire race like the orcs and just believe your gun will work, and it does. Yeah, no, one of the, and the closest they come to true AI are these things called the Castilian uh, robots, which are essentially robot space marines that operate on a very simple, you know, artificial brain that's not technically AI. I think I've seen figures of that in game shops. Mm-hmm, no, and uh, the army is largely supplemented by the Skitari, which is the militant arm of uh, the Mechanicus, and lots and lots of combat servitors, which... Let's talk about servitors real quick. Go for it, buddy. Servitors are humans that have been lobotomized and had their bodies converted to, well, slave robots. Oh, doesn't that sound horrifying? Oh, there's worse elements, but we'll talk about them. We won't go into that one on this episode. That's a, We'll talk about cherubs another time. Uh, I guess, I was going to say I don't want to know, but I guess you're going to make me know at some point, so... (laughs) Yeah, so, uh, their whole big thing is, it's this whole army that's about constantly replacing the weak human flesh and adding on cool robot bits, and, uh, their biggest thing is they are searching for STCs, and STC stands for Standard Template Construct, which was this blueprint that was handed to all the settlers of the universe of... This is how you build this, you know, thing, be it knife, be it tank, out of whatever materials you have. And they worship these because they don't believe in innovation, because innovation leads to bad stuff, essentially. Yeah, that's kind of what keeps coming back down to, is it's all, if we change this, it will make AI. Even, you know. Oh, I was just, as we discussed, the stagnation of technology is, um, you know, a big deal in the Imperium, and. I would say that, I mean, the main strength of, like, the Tau is their ability to just keep on improving constantly. And if the Imperium yeah. is actively holding back its own technological growth, no wonder they uh, are losing their foothold as, you know, galactic, like, number one. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting with the Mechanicus is they're all about improving their forms and making themselves better, but they will not improve the technology. Yeah, that's dumb. Yeah, it's kind of its own weird oxymoron. But... They're kind of a cool army. I've often compared them to they're like a less hive-minded Borg in a lot okay. of ways. I mean, yeah, you're more I mean, of a Trekkie Borg, than I am, so you well, can... The, the Borg are striving for perfection, and they feel like perfection comes from... Or perfection will come from making every life form Borg, essentially, because then they'll have absorbed all technology and all organic to become the perfect race, essentially. Yeah, that's kind of the Mechanicus's thing, is not get everybody, but... If we, you know, if I replace my hand with a gun, my hand is now better. You see the... I'll tell you later, but um, for anyone who... Sorry, a gun in the hand. Anyone who hasn't seen the trailer of the movie Upgrade, go, go check that trailer out. Anyway, <laughs> we should um move on to the next army. I mean, yeah, we get it. They're, they're, they're Borg-like space marine people who want to improve but at the same time want to hold back. It it all makes sense, and I'm I'm frustrated with them just from listening to you tell me about them. So <laughs> let's let's move on. Okay, let's talk about, uh, this is a really old army that existed in the days of the heresy that kind of disappeared after the heresy and has now made a resurgence, the Sisters of Silence. 
Now, I know that's the name of a faction in Dragon Age, of a bunch of dwarf warrior women who cut out their tongues. Well, I'm not sure if they cut out their tongues. That part's kind of murky. But they do take, they are, this is a nether all-female warrior order, that, and they don't speak. They communicate solely through battle sign. But that's not what makes them interesting. What makes them interesting is they are blanks. And I can't remember if we talked about blanks or not before, but to go over it again, blanks are humans that are born without a soul. And because of that, they create... Hmm? I said, well, ain't that messed up. Yeah, and because of that, they cast this psychic nullifying field around them, meaning demons, you, you know, will experience pain and psychic powers either are stopped or diminished depending on the strength of the null and how many there are in a group. Now, only one in a billion people in the Imperium is born with this, you know, genetic flaw. Because it's that's really kind of what it is. At this point, if it's lacking a soul, that seems like different than, you know. It's your... considered, it's a null gene. It can be passed down. But it, you know, it's kind of a flaw. And I call it a flaw because it makes people around them physically ill and uncomfortable and they don't know why. Alrighty then. But back in the heresy, the emperor began gathering all of these, you know, null women up, training them to be warriors, giving them some form of augmentics has not really been made clear, but they could go toe-to-toe with a space marine and win. And he made his own personal bodyguard of them. And that says a lot about how powerful a psyker the Emperor was, that he went around with a group of women designed to nullify his powers, and it didn't affect him. All right. Yeah, so following, you know, his death and the end of the Horse Heresy, they kind of fell out because... No one likes them. And it's nothing personal except they get that creepy null aura around them. So they got scooped up by the Inquisition, and some of them, you know, went off to their own thing. Some of them went underground. Uh, and it wasn't really until Gilliman came back, and he's like, wait a second, where are those badass warrior women that are, you know, antithesis to psychers and demons? I'm going to reform them. Uh, no Not a lot of lore on them because they existed in the heresy and there wasn't a lot of lore on them then. Then they disappeared and they've just now come back into the 40k setting. Well, if they're silent, it makes sense that there wouldn't be a lot of lore about them. (laughs) Yeah, no, again, it's just the rare amount of women in the Imperium that are born with this gene are found. If they're found, they're trained up in, you know, this fighting style they're given some form of augmentics and they are sent into battle. And they go into battle un, without unspeaking and totally kicking ass. Uh, Gilliman has recruited a little cadre to follow him around and go into battle because he's been fighting a lot of psychers and demons. Um, their biggest battle was the Battle of Prospero during the Horus Heresy when a group of them alongside some custodies and uh, space wolves were able to beat back the Thousand Suns, which we'll talk about more when we do the Chaos uh, Warriors. But they're actually, they're really kind of cool, and I'm hoping that they continue to develop them and add more, because seven-foot-tall warrior women that don't speak, eh, that's kind of cool. All right. I mean, I, I, I have no idea what to add to that, so... Uh... There's, there's, not, there's not much to say about it right now, which is kind of unfortunate. So uh, let's move on to the Imperial Navy. Well, that sounds normal. Yeah, no, this is the 
space fleet of the Imperium. If it flies, it belongs to the Imperial Navy. You would think that most of the military then would be the Imperial Navy. I mean, that's why, like, in Star Trek, the space or uh, Starfleet uses mostly naval ranking systems, so. Yeah, no, they are a large support contingent because you can't go anywhere in space without the Navy. And I mean, this includes all the flyers of the Imperial Guard. The Imperial Guard has no air transport without the Imperial Navy. And this was done on purpose because back during the heresy, there was only the Imperial Army. They had the ships, they had the planes, they had the troops. It was all under one thing. So when elements broke off and went uh, traitor, they had everything they needed. So one of the big things they did afterwards is like, no, the army is one part, their transports will be another. Um, not really much to say about the Imperial Navy, except they fly really big ships in space. It seems almost like a, um, I don't want to say insults, that's not right, but like I've talked with a few different people in the military. Uh, I've talked with I've got a few friends who are Marines, at least two friends who are in the army, uh, two, three people who have been in the Navy. The point is, I've talked with a number of people in the military, and one of my grandfather's friends who was a Marine in uh, Vietnam, I remember him telling me I was pretty young, but he told me that, uh, in his own words, the Marines are the badasses who go in first, but the Navy SEALs are the best trained military people in the States. Because, and he, by his words, he said a job done by six Marines could be done by two Navy SEALs. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, not to, you know, because my grandfather was in the Navy. Um, there's just not a lot of lore about the Imperial Navy, but we'll put it, you know, give them their credit. These guys regularly go through the war. <laughs> Dangerous. Yeah, I mean... That, 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 to me, sums it up. Now, granted, the uh, Space Marine fleet is not part of the Imperial Navy. They are their own autonomous fleet. But all the biggest ships belong to the Navy. And they have some really big ships. Just look up some size comparison videos online to get an idea. All right. Well, I feel like... <sighs> Yeah, I feel like a lot of the big names then, and I mean, I mean, because Space Marines are obviously the most interesting. Like you said, they're the, the poster child in a lot of ways. I feel like they're like the second biggest poster child of 40K in general, other than the orcs who have basically become the poster child of 40K. But that's the point. Point is, though, that like, because it's all in space, and like you said, the ships are kind of paramount, you would think that, like, I, I have this image in my head, one of those big-ass ships, and, you know, the, the captain standing there with a suit, and it's, like, arms behind his head, and I'm I'm imagining, like, like an admiral from Mass Effect or something with just a straight jaw. Point is, they should be important, damn it. <laughs> yeah, no, there's a couple good games. Uh, there's Battle of Gothic, which is a fun computer game in which you control elements of the Imperial Navy. And if rumors are to be believed, Games Workshop is relaunching the tabletop game, of Battlefleet Gothic, in which you do get to control. It's a, supposedly going to be a lot like uh, X-Wing, in that you control elements of the fleet in space combat. I'm really hoping that's true, because I think that'd be a lot of fun. All right, well, we can only hope. So what, what comes next? What's after the Navy? Uh, the Adeptus Custodes, the personal bodyguard to the Emperor. Okay, are, are they like... Um, didn't we mention them before when we were talking about the yes. Emperor? We've like talked they, about them briefly, because they fought alongside the Emperor when he retook Terra. Didn't you make a comment that, like, they are to space marines what space marines are to, like, regular people or something like that? Yes. They can kill space marines. Um, essentially... What, they have 64 surgeries? 
Well, that's the cool thing about them. They actually don't undergo any surgery. They're okay, made right, through right. something. They're made through a form of uh, psychic discipline called biomancy. Oh, like magic controlling you know, biology. Okay. Yes. Uh, what they do is they are recruited from the best of the best of Imperial citizens on Terra. They are selected through secretive means. We aren't really sure how, but they typically go out and find the most loyal, dedicated families and then take their children <laughs> and transform them into nine foot tall uh, Baroque golden warriors who make space Marines look like children. Well, that is um, depressing. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, in the Horus Heresy, it was once compared by a space Marine watching some Adeptus Custodes fights. We are wolves, they are lions. And in that, I'm sorry, what? I, my brain short-circuited. Werewolves and lions? No, they said, we are wolves, they are lions. Okay, the way you phrased that, I just heard werewolves and lions. I was like, what? <laughs> okay, that, that, we are... that unfortunately does exist in 40k, but I'm not going to talk about that today. And they meant this in the terms of space wolves fight in a, a group, whereas custodies fight as individuals. But also in the size of, if you put a single wolf up against a single lion, that wolf's not going to come out of it alive. Uh, I will say, when I was looking up that the, the forums on who's the best Primarch, I saw plenty of people uh, bitching about when Russ, the Space Wolves guy, fought against the, um, the, the, the lion Primarch, whatever his name is, who apparently uh, not... Lionel uh, Johnson. Yeah, and apparently from what I read, I didn't actually read the, the, the book, but I read that like Lionel handily defeated Russ, and those people were like, that's bullshit! That is bullshit, but another topic, another time. Um, they're really cool because for the longest time, they only, they stayed mostly on Terra in the Imperial Palace because they felt shame for letting the Emperor die. A couple of them operated outside of the Imperial Palace, you know, as kind of, you know, repressing rebellions and whatnot, but they still mainly stayed on Terra to guard the Emperor. And when Gilliman came back, he wasn't happy that they weren't, you know, doing more for the Imperium. And when he came out from his talk with his dad, they decided, okay, We've sat in shadows too long. Let's go back out in the universe and kick ass. And kick ass they have. I mean, it does kind of seem that without a um, a traveling god emperor, there ain't much use for uh, custodians. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, so they've kind of, they haven't been doing nothing. A large contingent of them have been uh, guarding the rift that Magnus tore in to the heart of Terra when he tried to warn the Emperor of Horus' betrayal. Don't worry if it sounds confusing. This is all stuff we'll go into when we talk about the Horus heresy. And they've been standing in this way fighting an endless war against demons since, you know, then. And it only recently just ended. Okay. So they haven't been doing nothing. I, I'm sure. But it feels like their names might not be at this point then. Yeah. No, they've, kind of, they've talked about it. It's like, we really spent too long just dicking around. We should have been doing more. Um, but they're really cool. They wield giant spear blades with a gun on the end. I mean, that's it feels kind of the reverse of what it normally is, you know, with a bayonet. Yeah, no, their entire weapon is just a bayonet. They also have a couple other cool things. They have swords with guns attached. They have axes with guns attached. This is 40k. They like to put guns on blades and blades on guns, and sometimes guns that are blades and sometimes blades that are guns. Let's just, let's just put this in a circle and keep going until we go into a singularity of gunplay. 
Yeah, no, they're really cool. Uh, again, not a lot of lore on them yet because most of the lore is in tied to Horus Heresy and that was the Emperor. And they're getting a bit more now. Um, most notably, they repelled an invasion by Korn into Terra. Cool. Which is, you know, really interesting. They're, I said, I play uh, Custodians, my second army I started. They're a lot of fun. They really kick ass on the tabletop. I mean, they sound like they're meant to be kind of busted, but all right. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, lastly, we're going to talk about the Adeptus Titanicus or the God Machine. Well, that sounds... Well, I mean, their name is right, basically Pupils of Titans or Pupils of the Titan. I have to yeah. check with Titanicus or the Giant, something like that. But I mean, I guess based on the names, so go for it. We've talked about the Titans before. These are the epitome of giant sci-fi robots. Um, <laughs> they are dropped on planets from space and then slowly awoken. Um, there are three main classes. You've got Warhounds, Reavers, Warlords, and then from, there's a couple of different groups within there, but each one bigger than the last. Um, the really interesting thing about them is we talked about the machine spirit, and all of them have really, really angry machine spirits that will eventually drive their controllers crazy. Ain't that nice. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, the bigger Titans require more crews to operate them because not only is there a machine spirit, but the people that operate them are plugged into the machines themselves and control different elements. One will control an arm, another will control another arm, and the main guy will control the body. And the whole time they have this angry voice in the back, they're going, go over there, kill that. I want to kill that. I want to end it. And For the, as, a, as a side note, I can't seem to find Titanicus as a real word. It looks like <laughs> it's just a 40K thing, so relating to the Titans. <laughs> yeah, and what's really cool when you're reading any books about the Titans and you've got a POV character that's, you know, piloting one, they're talking about the how angry the machine spirit is and it wants to go over there and, you know, destroy. And they have to fight it off, for, you know, keep it from going and doing that um scale wise it's kind of all over the map i mean there hasn't been a definitive size sometimes they are the size of mountains other times they're the size of skyscrapers it kind of goes back and forth there's no real definitive size except they are really really big very 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 big <laughs> yeah no um they are worshipped by the mechanicus even though they aren't technically part of the mechanicus because well they're giant machines of death Ah, this is the kind of thing that'd be worshipped. <laughs> um, one of the coolest things, like they've got a whole bunch of different weapon loadouts, but anytime I talk about Titans and their killing capacity, one of the coolest weapons they have for the bigger ones are uh, it's a special bullet that they take an element of the warp and they put it inside and then they launch it, and when it goes off, it opens a rift to the warp and sucks everything in. Well, that and, doesn't sound pleasant. Yeah. One of the coolest elements apparently is when these things are in storage, you can hear the moaning and the groaning of souls that are trapped inside. And I just imagine, you know, because these things, you have the main crew, but there are essentially a city living inside some of the bigger ones in just crew. And I just imagine people going on, damn it, shut up in there. You'll get fired off. <laughs> so, uh, no, in the biggest ones, they literally have castles perched on their shoulders. That sounds... I think I've seen fan art of that. Yeah. The Emperor-class Titans. 
And uh, no, this is the real one of the big iconic images for people in 40Ks, giant death robots. Cool. I don't know. I don't know how to say that. I mean, that's. It seems like it speaks for itself. If giant death robots doesn't pique your interest, then you're probably you know looking at the wrong thing, right? There's you're in the wrong place. Yeah. No, they're exceptionally old and exceptionally rare, so they don't get fielded a lot. But when they do, typically it's in a serious war zone. All right. Well, unless you have some other tidbit or a bit of super cool information about these Titan machines of death. We should uh, you know, move. We should wrap up soon here. Yeah, that's it for the armies. Now, before you know, someone complains. Well, why didn't you say about talk about the Inquisition or the Grey Knights or so on and so forth? Uh, please note, we will do a separate video in which we talk about the Inquisition and the sub factions there within. But uh, I think that, down. Yeah. The, 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 four, the Imperium is huge. It took us two videos just to scratch the surface. Very light reading of the material. Yeah, this is Games Workshop's go-to faction. This is the human faction. There's a lot to cover. We didn't have time for it all. But that, I think, covers the Imperium of Man, more or less. Axel, any thoughts? I still prefer the orcs. <laughs> yeah, I know you do. A lot of people do. All right, well, let's move on to suggestions of the week. All right, I admit that um, because I'm not going to give you viewers too much of behind the curtain here, but there's a weird scheduling thing this week, and because of that, I didn't really come up with a good suggestion of the week, so I literally just opened up my Steam and was like, what game do I have that's good that I haven't talked about? So I'm going to suggest uh, Dead by Daylight, which, you know, just go watch some people play it. it, it it's a um, asymmetrical competitive game where one team is one guy and the other team is like five people and the team of five people are just regular people trying to escape a bad place and the team of one person is a serial killer trying to take them down. And there are any number of horror movie monsters. Some of them licensed, like Jason Voorhees or Freddy Krueger. More of them are just like obvious references that they can't name outright, like uh, the hag or things like that. But if the idea of... uh, hunting down your friends one by one. And by the way, you'd think that that kind of game would be like, oh, we shouldn't be talking. We should. No, it's hilarious if you're like in the chat with them. Be like, oh, I see you, Jake. I'm coming for you. <laughs> this sounds like a lot of fun. I can't believe I heard about this game. Yeah, well, a lot of people heard about there was a um, uh, Friday the 13th game that came yeah, out. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, well, Dead by Daylight came out before this, I believe, if I remember correctly. And it has, you know, whereas in Friday the 13th, you just play Jason, Dead by Daylight, you can play as, like, one of, like, 12 different kinds of killers. And they all have different, you know, strengths and weaknesses and stuff. And I find that to be far more interesting. So, like, yeah, yeah so, like, one of the ones I really like, uh, if I remember correctly, well, first of all, okay, I'll just talk about uh, Michael Myers, who's the one that got me to look into it. Because Michael Myers' whole ability is um it's called like the inner evil so if he sees uh, a survivor is what they call the other team and you press and hold a button then he just stares at them and the more hmm. he stares at them he builds up a meter and when the meter hits a certain level he hits the next level of inner evil and suddenly everyone on the map survivors included hear the halloween theme that's awesome no, and then he starts, I... he starts moving faster then and he can do that like two times and then he just is power walking at people and just stabs them with his knife it's amazing. That's awesome. No, I want uh, Games Workshop to get in contact because I would love to play that with Lictor. Lictor? It's a uh, Tyranid's Infiltration Unit. 
They well, uh, camouflage and slaughter. They're really cool. We'll talk about them when we do yeah. Tyranids. Anyway, point is that like trying to get together a group to play can be you know difficult unless you are a regular online player. But if the idea of this kind of game, which I know for me and a lot of my friends, like we had thought of this game years ago as like a concept like that we wanted, and now it exists and is pretty good. So just you know watch some videos of it, see how you like it. But it's it's worth looking into. All right. Well, at some point I'm going to run out of. Uh... Warhammer 40k things to suggest, but that day is not today because I'm suggesting the first book in the Horus Heresy series, Horus Rising by Dan Abnett. Um, if anything we have talked about sounds remotely interesting, I advise you pick up this book. It is incredibly well-written and interesting, especially how they depict Horus, who is the ultimate villain in this universe, and you really sympathize and like him. Haven't you made the stance that the Horus books are, like, the best books? Yeah, a lot of times people accuse 40K of being dumb sci-fi, and at times it can be. But some of the stuff they go into in the uh, Horus Heresy books is really interesting. And I don't want to say profound, because that's a bit much, but intelligent. And it, 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 a lot of it makes you think and kind of really look at And this book starts the whole series, and the first three of this series are really solid books because it's character focus. It's focused on this one man's slow descent into evil and his decision to betray his father and what led him to do that. And it's really, really compelling and interesting. I love this book. I'm trying really hard not to respond in a really goofy voice and just start saying evil things because that's what I keep wanting to do when you talk about that. But... Well, there is that, but this kind of helps flush it out a bit more. All right, cool. I mean, I'm I'm reading like four of my own books right now, but yeah, like like you said, uh, these are apparent. These books are apparently great, so just take his word for it. <laughs> yeah, this is what I tell people if they don't know anything about 40k, they start here. Okay, works for me. All right. Well, that is today's show. Thank you for listening. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a comment down below if there's something you'd like to hear us talk about in a future episode. We do read the comments, for better or worse. Uh, we are on Twitter and Patreon. Links will be in the description below. As always, this has been Lord Commander Ulrich. And his shield brother, Axel Wright. Be sure to tune in next time. And as always, stay honorable.